welcome everybody to another community chat. And um, this is actually a follow-up that we're doing to a webinar that um, was done previously. It was in June, wasn't it, uh, Jim? Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, we've got uh, James Spiegner with us today. And people have actually uh, shared in questions for us. And so we're going to be looking at those questions. And so I just wanted to kind of kick this off with um, Xavier was our first member who asked a question and it says, sometimes I wonder why I cannot get really good employees. My employees take shortcuts and don't speak up or report concerns. I see them ignoring exposure changes, even though we tell them repeatedly to stop unsafe work and they don't. So Jim, people from the webinar that you gave would love to get some insight on this. Well, uh, <clears throat> the reality is you could have some bad employees. I mean, I've seen that happen, but in most cases, you don't hire bad employees. The employees, and people don't realize this, the employees are getting signals every minute of every day from the leaders that they work with and the people around them, and they're responding to those signals. They don't so much respond to the words that a leader says once in a while. So it's really easy for a manager in the company to say, I don't want you guys to work unsafe. I want you to follow the rules, take whatever time necessary. But if every time they ask a question, somebody says, how long is it gonna take you to get that finished? And are we gonna get that done by the end of the day? And, and that's the kind of feedback they hear. Then they, the message they get is, okay, I heard those words, but what my boss really wants is X. And people are driven anyway to take shortcuts. I mean, that's, that's the way humans are strung up. We're, we're, we're creatures of efficiency. And so what people are doing is they're looking at the work and they're thinking to themselves, well, if I leave out these steps that don't really seem necessary, I mean, I don't think I'm going to get hurt. I can get the job done quicker and I can increase my productivity and I'll, I'll be a better employee in the, in the eyes of the organization. I don't think most employees are taking shortcuts because they hope to get hurt or they even believe they're going to get hurt. They take them because one, that's the way we're wired up. And if they do the job once and leave out a step, it's pretty safe to say that they're likely to do that again because they left the step out, the job got done, it got done quicker, it got done easier, and they didn't get hurt. So we have to be more cognizant of the messages we're sending implicitly. And what that speaks to is you could spend a lot of money trying to retrain your employees. I would say that probably wouldn't pay off. I would say your better investment would be to train the supervisors and the managers and help them understand how the signals that they're sending and the words that they're saying are really uh, sending a different message to the employees than they intend. And until they get that right, you're gonna continue to get uh, the things that you're seeing, Xavier. And it's, this is not uncommon. This is very common. And what happens is we get frustrated at the employees and in reality, we shouldn't be. What we ought to be looking at is, is why is the employee doing it that way? Do Because we don't, in general, hire bad employees. We, we just don't. And, so. and another thing to be bringing to the table here is that people 
have past experiences and learnings, et cetera, before they've joined you at your company, right. as well as cultural and beliefs and values that yep. they bring those into the workplace, don't they, Jim? They do, and here, but here's the interesting thing. Generally, the culture that's already there will shape and change and modify the beliefs that people have about the way they ought to be working. Now, the, you, in general, somebody who really has a strong belief about telling the truth, they're not going to get changed in that belief. But whether it's okay to take a shortcut or not, that's a whole different level of, it's easy for me to say, gosh, you know, the only way I'm going to get along in this company is to do work the way these other guys are working. My other option is to quit. And so what most people do is gradually they, they mold themselves to the culture that they're in already. So as leaders, we've got to understand that the culture that we've gotten is the culture that we've asked for. And until yeah. we do something different, we're not going to change that culture. And so it really is that we need to start at the leadership level if we're going to make those changes. Now, can you provide some insights, some tangible things that individuals could be doing to kind of nurture and cultivate the culture that they want in the well, organization? Yeah, yeah. So here, here's the thing. It's culture is sort of really fuzzy. I mean, you know, when I ask people, tell me what, what your culture is, they, they say things like, well, it's the way we do stuff around here. Well, that's not really what I mean. I mean, and, and so what I found is people can't explain to me what the culture is because it's deeply held at the assumptive level. In other words, culture is so uh, insidious and so ingrained, we, we don't even realize that a lot of the things we're doing that we're responding to culturally, we don't even understand why we're doing it. So I'm going to tell a real quick story. There's a, there was a, a young fellow who, who had gotten married and at their first Christmas, they wanted to invite their family over for Christmas dinner. He did. He wanted to have his wife and all of them come over. So his wife was a little bit reluctant because, you know, she, she didn't know how, you know, how these people ate, what they liked and all of this so much. And she was worried. And he said, don't worry about it. I'll get up and help you. It'll be a joint effort. And that way, if we succeed, it'll be a joint success. If we don't succeed, it'll be me too. So Christmas morning, uh, they, he got up with her and she got the ham out of the refrigerator. They were going to have a ham and a turkey. And she took this big ham and unwrapped it and she cut the butt end of it off and wrapped it up in aluminum foil and put it in the refrigerator, put the rest of the ham in the pan and seasoned it, stuck it in the oven. And he was observing this and he said, why didn't you put the whole ham in the in the pan? Why did you cut the end of it off? And she said, well, my, my mom always did that. And then later on, we took that butt end and she made you know, beans or soup or something like that out of it. And he said, wow, well, why, why would you do that? I mean, why wouldn't you just cook it all? I mean, we're having a, a big gathering. She said, I, I really don't know. It's the way my mom taught me to do it. He said, well, call mom and find out why she did it. So they called her mother and her mother said, well, I, I really don't know my grandmother. I mean, my mother, your grandmother taught me to do that. But they said, well, let's call grandma. Let's get to the bottom of this. So they called grandma and said, grandma, you taught mom to cut the butt end of the ham off. Why did you do that? And she said, my pan wasn't big enough. And so that's the way culture works. So this young lady was cutting the end of the ham off and she had no idea really why. And it all went back to 
the fact that her grandmother had done it and, and her mother had seen that over and over and over again. And so at the assumptive level, the way we cook a ham in our house is we cut the end off, we put it in the pan, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's going on in the workplace every day. And so here's the interesting thing. Instead of trying to figure out the culture and go do something about that, figure out what are the leadership behaviors that are driving the kinds of behaviors that you either want or don't want. So the first step that uh, a group of leaders ought to do is get honest feedback from the workforce on what are recognized by research now as the best leadership practices for a high-performing culture. And those practices are well known today. There are seven of them, really, that the research says will lead you to a high-performing culture. The problem is leaders don't have any idea how well they're executing those behaviors in the eyes of their people. So one thing that's really interesting is to either develop or get a 360 feedback instrument and get some feedback on those anonymously so people can be honest with you and you as a leader can see am I executing on these things or am I not very well and that's the first step to really making change is finding out how are you doing what do your people think of the of these practices that you should be executing so I would say get educated on those practices and then find a way to get some good honest 360 feedback on that and then develop yourself an action plan to start making the changes to get better. No, absolutely. I, I, you're so on point with what you're bringing forward. And we did have our member, Dan, um, share a comment with you that it may sound corny or commonplace, but lead by example is so powerful. It's yes. so true. Yes, absolutely. We call, uh, we call that in, in leadership terms, transformational. So if you want to transform your organization, you lead by example and you make sure that when you're leading, you're setting a good, in other words, you're giving people a reason to follow you. And what happens is that has an impact that goes far beyond the actual uh, interventions that you have with people, the interactions that you have with them, it changes the way they think about things. And then their interactions with others really spreads that. So it becomes almost viral. That's, that's very true. I want to go back to what you were saying about getting feedback. And yep. just for people to know, we are on Facebook Live also. So if you kind of see my eyes go off a little bit, it's because I'm also looking at the chat there. Because sure. uh, we do have a few people who have joined us. Um, and so that's phenomenal. Um, but I, I want to go back to, you were saying about getting um, anonymous feedback. Yep. I want to touch on that for a moment. Because a lot of companies, they will go and they will get anonymous feedback. And then what they'll do is they'll, they'll bring all that feedback and plaster it up on uh, PowerPoint for everybody else to, to see and look at all the comments and then start talking about the comments. And then people are able to identify who said what comments. Is that yep. in your opinion, keeping it anonymous? I, I don't think that's the right way to go about it, at least to start with, because what you already know is you don't know how accepting the culture is of that kind of stuff. You know that already. So I would say the feedback should be for the benefit of the person you're getting it on. It should not be something used to beat them or, or whatever, because up until this point, 
they're acting on what they think is right. They have, they, they really don't have any other basis. And so as far as they're concerned, the stuff they're doing is pretty good and it probably is, or they wouldn't be there, but there's room for improvement. So if you think of feedback as, as a mechanism to help someone improve, then you don't put it up on the board and beat on people with it and, and, and embarrass them or whatever, because I will tell you, I can, Without fail, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of people in good leadership positions who believe they're doing a really good job, who when they get this feedback, it's a shock to them. There will be several things that they're not doing well. There'll be a bunch of stuff they're doing well, but there will be those things that they're really missing the mark on and they have no idea about it. And so to put that up on the board and surprise them with that makes it very difficult then for them to improve, for them not to take that personally. And, and that's not the best way. So here's what I would say. That feedback should be gathered anonymously for them and given to them. And then someone, so one of the way, one of the things I do regularly for senior leaders is sit down with them. I gather that feedback from their directs and I sit down with them privately and I help them interpret what that feedback really means. And then here's what's really important as I help them develop a plan for how they're going to improve. And not a plan for what I think, but a plan that they feel comfortable that they can execute on. And then I help them do that. And the improvement is really, can be really dramatic and really quick. And now you've got a, you've developed a, a learning relationship, not a adverse or, or a conflict type re, uh, relationship with them. And one of the things that I find really powerful is for the frontline supervisor to be able to see their boss as a coach and for their boss to be able to use this to sit down with them and have them identify what they would like to improve and have their boss help them figure out, so what is it I can do that you think would make me improve and what do I think would make me improve and have a collaboration around that. But it doesn't need to be in public. It really doesn't. Yeah, no, I, I love where you're going with this, and thank you. And as an individual who is ADHD and learning disabled, um, you know, the best um, managers that I've had are exactly what you're saying. They're coaches, so they come at it from a perspective that every employee is unique in their needs, in their learning and development needs. Yep. And I remember I had this phenomenal one um, individual, Dan McLean, where he would actually take some people out of the office onto walks because he saw they weren't getting enough exercise and stuff. They were sitting at their desks. So yep. also I think, um, you know, how can you share with us ways to pick up on the needs of employees? Not always what they want, but what you're seeing as needs. How do you do that as a leader? Well, we, we have a dimension that we measure leaders on. So we have a 360 feedback instrument, a really good one that's based on these practices but it's also based on style. And so what you're talking about is a style issue. And one of, the, one of the attributes of a really good transformational leader is called engaging. And it doesn't mean like typical employee engagement. What it means is how much time do you spend one-on-one -on -one with each of your employees getting to know what their needs are. So unless you make that a, a deliberate, uh, objective of yours, the likelihood that you're going to get to know what you need to know about them to make them successful. And that has to be your goal. 
So as a leader, I want every one of my people to be successful for two reasons. One, it's the right thing to do, right? I mean, I want to be successful myself. I'd like to have them helping me. I'd like to have others helping me. The more they know about me, the more they can help me. And the more I help them, the more likely they are to help me. So I want them to be successful for selfish reason, but I also want them to be successful because that's what everybody wants out of life. And, and I, I, at my age, I've learned that it's more than just about me. I, I really find that making other people successful is a really rewarding thing. And it doesn't cost me anymore. It actually makes my job easier. So what I do with, with employees that have worked for me in the past is I have set up 30 minute informal. We're not gonna talk about performance. We're not gonna talk about any of that. What I wanna talk about is what kinds of things uh, do you really like to do? What kinds of things do you struggle with? What kinds of things are you working on now that you could use some help on? What kinds of things uh, do you dislike? What is it that makes you tick as an individual? And I, and I did those religiously and regularly with the people who reported to me. And across time, what they realized was I was on their side. I was trying to make them successful. So if I knew they, they liked certain kinds of challenges, when those kinds of opportunities came on, I would assign them to, to teams or to those kinds of tasks. And my goal was to grow them in a way that they could take the next job if they wanted it or be more successful in the job they had or whatever. And once my employees learned that about me, believe me, the amount of, of, of management I had to do and the amount of all that stuff I had to do was, was minimal. I could depend on them to come to me if there was a problem. They weren't afraid of me. They knew that I had their best interest at heart. It didn't mean that from time to time I had to lay people off or whatever, but they knew when they were working for me, they could depend on me for the truth, for coaching, for help, for all of that kind of stuff. So I tell leaders, you can make your job harder, you can make it easy. And, they, and, and it seems like more work to make it easy, but it isn't. It really makes your life easier once you get the ball rolling. Absolutely. And that in itself, as you were saying about creating culture, those people will go on and do that once they yes. they are mentored by you. This is right. the style of our leadership. They will go on to every place that they work. So then they're actually taking a little piece of Jim with them along well, the way. And here, here's the interesting thing. I would have people come up to me and say, you know, people come from other departments and ask me, why don't you, why do you keep doing it that way? You could leave those three steps out. You could take those shortcuts. And what they say to me is, look, my boss is in my corner. My boss is helping me all I can. And my boss asked me to do it this way. And that's the least I can do to return the favor of my boss standing behind me, standing up for me, helping me. I'm going to do exactly what my boss asked me to do. That's what I'm going to do. And I, and I feel good about doing that. So there's, a, there's a, a theory out there called the theory of reciprocity or social exchange theory. And what that theory says is if you're really in your employee's corner, the level of compliance you will get from that employee without even asking for it just goes up double. Absolutely. No. And I, I, I even saw that in my own work as a health and safety professional. When you've got their back, they've got yours. And in the style that you're talking about mentoring people, I noticed very successful people 
will often talk about the mentors doing the same way where their their manager was actually encouraging them that if there was another job at, at another company it's okay you can go and grow you don't have to be you know um, locked in and then that they welcome them back once they go to that other company they develop more in a different way and then they say okay will you come back and work for us that's not a, a normal yeah people don't leave jobs for the most part they leave bosses i mean that, that's that's really what it gets down to now if you're underpaying your people or you know if you don't offer insurance and the other company offers insurance and i have two small children it's really hard to compete with that and you can't blame an employee for for that at all and you don't gain by making the employee feel bad about bettering themselves to go somewhere else so sometimes you're locked in from a from a benefits perspective to not be as competitive but but if you're in the ballpark you're competitive and you won't be successful as a company if you're not then people aren't going to leave just for 25 cents or 50 cents an hour or even a dollar an hour. If they really love working in the environment that you've created, the likelihood you'll lose them is pretty low. Now we do have some questions on the board. So I do want to make sure that we give uh, love to our members and our listeners. Yep. So Eric Keller was asking, um, this may be hard to answer, but is, is, but is there one single action supervision must do to get buy-in from the workers? What is that one action? So Eric really wants to learn from you that. I, I would say respect. And let me tell you what I mean by respect. So that's a real fuzzy word. That means being straight and honest with your employees. That means engaging them. You don't respect them if you don't engage them and get their input on things. So if, if you were to give me one action that would pay the biggest dividends, I would say be honest and engaging with your employees. Ask their opinions about things. Figure out, are there better, do they know a better way to do it? Are there things that you could, because look, they want to be satisfied in their job also. No one wants to come to work and think all they are is a pair of hands. And if that's all you want them for, I'm sorry, you're going to have huge turnover and, and you're going to get minimal compliance and all that other stuff. So you ask me, what's the action? I would say, think of the, treat your employees the way you would like to be treated in that situation. And that, that to me is respect. And you don't respect someone if you're not honest with them and you don't ask for their input and, and get their ideas and listen to them. So I don't, I don't find it to be a hard question out there. I think there's a whole lot of other things you ought to be doing also, but that's a great starting place. It's an excellent starting place. Yep. It's the foundational piece. Yep. Now I do have another question um, from Santosh. I found okay. most of workmen are working by compulsion. They don't have interests, lack passion, including top management. So the error rate increases. Any thoughts on passion? That's a hard one. Uh, actually, it's really easy. This is, you know, we get back to the reality is if, if uh, we're all compelled to work, right? I mean, nobody for the most part is going to sit at home and get paid as much and have as good a life as if they don't work. So let's just be straight. We all have to work, basically. I mean, human beings are not meant to 
sit in a corner and have someone throw food at them. That's just, that's just not the way we're strung up. Now, when you see people who have no passion, it's because you have a leader who has no vision. And the reality is this, everybody wants to be, feel like what they're doing has value. And you have to, and, and I've seen the most menial jobs have some of the most passionate people doing them. And it's not about the job. It's about the leader and the way the leader connects people to what their value is in doing that job. So I, I spent a summer, nearly all of a summer, working for a garbage company. We picked up garbage. And I was just a, I was a young guy. I was, I was uh, you know, I was one of my early, very early sort of forays into the, and, you know, I, I had people who thought of themselves as garbage men. And, you know, one of the things that was important, I felt like was, you know what, if you guys didn't do this job, what would life be like? Really? And I didn't go and tell them, well, you're dumb. You, sh you shouldn't be thinking about that. That what I did was I talked about every day how proud I was to be able to do the job. And all of a sudden, I could see the people around me starting to feel some pride and starting to, and, you know, I would, you know, I would do things exactly right. So I would dump the can out and the paper fell on the street. I would pick that paper up and they, oh, you don't have to do that. I said, I know I don't have to, but you know what? I want to be, if I'm going to be a, a, a trash man, I want to be the best one there is. And I want these neighbors to talk well about us. And, you know, as small as that was, it was infectious. And so all of the guys on my route that I worked with, they, they actually got to where they loved working with me. I, you know, we ate lunch together. We, and, you know, I treated them like what they did was, and it was, as far as I'm concerned, I value them probably more than I value my accountant. Because if my accountant stops doing for me what he does, my life goes on. If the guy out front stops picking the trash up, things get really nasty pretty quick. So I, everybody's job is valuable. The trick is, as a leader, can you get people to see that? Can you get them to measure something so they can tell they're successful? So on that route, I told those guys, I said, I want to see how many times we can leave the trash can exactly where we found it against the curb, not in some haphazard way. How many times do we leave the, we ought to be looking at how many times when we drive away from a house, is it as clean or cleaner than when we drove up to it? And those guys got to, we all got to measuring that kind of stuff. And then they could see how successful they were just in that small, those small measurements. So look, every job people do, if somebody's willing to pay you for it, it's valuable. And the trick is, as a leader, can you get people to tap into recognizing that what they do has a value? It really does. It has a value to their family. It has a value to the customers. It has a value to everybody. It's when I never get that feedback and you don't have me a way to see that what I'm doing is valuable, then you get exactly what he's describing. All the way top to bottom. And and pride is such an important self-motivator. And for self-confidence. It is. And I mean, I can, you know, I, I know people that make 10 times the money I make, right? But that doesn't make my job any less valuable or more valuable. It doesn't make me any less valuable or more valuable. I take pride in what I do. I really do. And I help, I try to help others take pride in what they do. 
and not to focus on the things that you can't do much about, you know, and, and really understand what value you're bringing. Nobody sat down with, nobody ever sat down with those trash guys and really had a talk with them, the big leader, about how important what we do is and how important to our company that we do it right it is and how valuable you are when you do it right. And then when they did it, nobody ever bothered to give them any feedback on it. Nobody ever, you know, went around and looked at what these guys did and, and even solicited any feedback from the customers. And, you know, at Christmas time, you know, I, I always go out and tip my trash guy if he, and, but I got to know my trash guy the day I moved into my, this neighborhood. I stopped him out there and I thanked him for what he did. And I will tell you something. They don't beat my trash can up. They don't, they, my trash can, and at Christmas time, I go out and I give my trash guy a Christmas gift. Not because I'm asking for anything better. It's because he does a service for me that nobody else does. And, and I value that. And his boss ought to be feeding that. And if he does, he'll never lose that guy. And that guy will make guys like me extremely happy. And they'll never have to worry about my neighborhood voting for another trash service because of the crappy service we get. And I think also to build on that, and I think people are learning that now through what we're going through, the pandemic that we're going through, is how important and and critical these essential services are. They're called essential services yep. for a reason. The people in the grocery store, the the um, people who pick up our, our, our waste and our, our trash, all of those people. And I think as a society, we need to be more humble in who we hold up and show appreciation to. Absolutely. That is part of. There's no doubt about it. And the human touch, even though we're, we're all doing this remotely, basically, I, I was listening to a, a marketing, see a, a chief marketing officer for a company the other day. And she said she found herself waving at people now as she got off the, and, and she said, I wonder why I do that. I mean, I, want, I said, it's because as human beings, we all crave that. We want the people on the other side to know we acknowledge them and, we, and, and we're letting them know, even though we're leaving, we want you to know we enjoyed, we, we, we got some satisfaction out of the conversation we just had. So I'm telling people now, my advice to leaders is, you're having all these remote meetings, Open your, open your meeting five minutes early and let people just talk to each other because people crave the human touch and, and this uh, pandemic is, is testing that. And I know we're going to learn to do some of this stuff better remotely, but I will tell you this, when it opens back up, I can't tell you how many people are going to be actually glad to go back to the office. Maybe not every day, but they miss that. And, and so if you take a lesson from that, you ought to be interacting with your direct reports more. Absolutely. Yeah. No, you're absolutely um, hitting it on, on the head with that um, hammer for that nail. Thank you. Yeah. You know, um, and we do have another question, but before we kind of switch off gears, you know, just to let people know, uh, this is our follow-up community mm -hmm. discussion because uh, Jim, you gave a, a, a webinar. It's called Using Exposure Control to Improve Decision-Making and Safety Performance. And that was in June, right? Yes. That uh, DECRA did that with us on Safepedia. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Um, 
But I, I do want to ask you one question that kind of goes off script. Are you okay with that? Yep. Okay. So, um, you know, a lot of people have spoken at length about uh, COVID returning to work and uh, post-work and everything. And yes, it's important. That is, those are important conversations. But what I wanted to ask you as a leader is, um, you know, looking at the more lasting implica implications. Yep. What long-term takeaways do you hope um, other companies will gain from this crisis? You know, because you're one of the leaders at, at a very great company, DECRA. And so I'd, I'd love to hear for your thoughts on that. Well, I, I think that uh, there are places we've not utilized uh, technology, right? So I think there are a lot more people who can do some of their work or, or maybe even most of their work at home. Uh, and I hope that this has given a lot of leaders the confidence to allow that where it's appropriate and where people want it. But I also believe in, because I've now participated in maybe a dozen conferences that were scheduled to be face-to-face -face conferences, but had to go uh, remote. And, you know, for information exchange, just pure information exchange, I would say they're 85% effective. Um, there's no way I can have a room with 100 people in it and me doing a presentation and not and and do as well that way as I do when I'm face-to-face -face live with people asking me questions and playing off of each other and all of that so but I think that same thing carries into the office I I believe that um, you know we have a lot we, we have all our meetings remote now and and we're looking at each other each other on the camera which is a big plus but the interaction that you get when people are together is is, is different and so I think that if leaders are really smart, they're gonna find a way to make more of that. In other words, they're gonna learn how to be, be, they will learn from this to be better communicators. And they'll learn, hopefully a lot of them will, the value of the personal touch. So there's a work time and there, there should be more time to do the connecting. So I, I'm hoping that these five minute and we're doing this as a matter of a way to do it. The first five to 10 minutes of the meeting is just socializing because you're not sitting with each other. Well, I think that there's a benefit. I hope we learn there's a benefit in that, but there are some changes that are going to occur that are gonna be permanent. One, I think business travel will be curtailed permanently to some degree. I think we figured out that I don't have to get on an airplane and fly 5,000 miles for a two hour meeting We've, we've advanced the technology enough and we've become ourselves proficient at using it enough that that will be curtailed to a great degree. I, I also believe that uh, you will see more companies go to open workspaces. And when I say open workspaces, I mean, you know, people will be spaced. You were in cubicles anyway, that, that, gives, that was pretty good social distancing without even realizing we were doing it. But, but I believe that you will see fewer and fewer uh, private offices. I think you'll see uh, organizations find ways when people are in the offices to connect better. So there'll be more, I think what you're gonna see are, are more 
common spaces where people can get together. Uh, companies will be changing some of their old office space. So instead of having all of this office space where I came every day to an office, I may only come in three days, but you're gonna have more conference type spaces where we can work together while we're there to make the most of that. I think that's, that's, there, there will be those kinds of changes. And I think the digital formats will get better and better. I mean, today's Zoom and all of that stuff is better than it's ever been. And I think there are organizations right now who have realized the value of those kinds of platforms. And I think that we're gonna get better and better and have better and better technology to do that. Yeah, no, I, I think you're very right about that. This has really thrust everybody into the millennium. You yep. know, we are now becoming more technology advanced and yep. people are like, even uh, we're doing our Safeopedia's um, Safety Connect in October, 2020. It's a yep. virtual conference with an yep. expedition, but we're even doing a VR session, virtual yep. reality, where people yep. are gonna wear Oculus lenses because yep. it is time you know, to push the envelope. And it doesn't just have to be an Elon Musk that pushes the envelope. Each of us need to participate in that. Well, we've, this forced us into a virtual conference. We will always now from here forward have a virtual aspect to our conference because not everybody can travel. So those kinds of changes are gonna occur. Let me give you one more benefit of this. <clears throat> one thing that hinders people um, employers especially from attracting the best talent, and, and you know this as well as I do, is people have special situations. So I've got a sister-in-law that has horrible arthritis. She's a very bright person and very skilled. And going into the office for her is a chore. They had to build all kinds of special stuff. To, and the company was more than willing to do it. What she has figured out is, look, save your money. I can do what I'm doing from home. We've proved that. I can sit in the meetings virtually. I don't have to come to work. My uh, granddaughter who just had a brand new baby is taking a new job with a company because they figured out she can do that job from home. And she doesn't have to go get childcare. And they've able, they were able to attract a very skilled, bright person to do that work because now the baby's not, a, not an impediment because, and I think employers are gonna figure out that the kind of flexibility that they're beginning to see that they can have with no loss of productivity, maybe even an increase, is gonna allow them to attract talent that they might never have been able to attract or accommodate uh, otherwise. So, I, and, I, and I think that cuts across all, you know, all aspects of it. Yeah, no, you know, I, I think it's very growing and you've brought up a lot of really good things for people to think about and think about how they can be also including it in their organizations, yep. their businesses, the conferences or, or whatever you've got going on in your area. This so we had a meeting, we had a meeting yesterday and normally I would have cut that meeting back to five or six people because of the amount of time it takes to get to and from the meeting. And instead we had 14 people in the meeting some of them not as participants, just to be able to pick up the information and not have to have it communicated secondhand to them. It didn't cost a penny more to include more people. So we're getting more efficient, not just because 
of the travel costs and the hourly costs, we're getting more efficient because we can have anybody that wants to listen into that meeting can listen in. Mm -hmm. and, and now we have a viral mechanism for the communications to go across the organization. And that is so powerful for collaborative um, yes. between yeah. departments, between locations. One of the seven best practices of the most powerful leaders is collaboration. So wow. I think we increase that in this world now. Awesome. And so, you know, if you want to be a powerful leader, figure out how you could increase that collaboration. Yep. It's yep. not a weakness, it's a strength. It's a strength, yes. So we did have another question uh, by Santosh. Um, she wanted to ask you, com uh, complacency in our managers and supervisors is a problem. How do we get managers and supervisors who get the value of doing things correctly? Well, one, you know, and I hate to go back and keep harping on this, but complacency really is a factor of my job being looked at as just a pair of hands that needs to do something, whether I be a manager or whatever. So <clears throat> if my boss is not, one, demanding continuous improvement, complacency comes from really good enough, we're good enough, don't do anything else. And so what happens is I turn my brain off because I can do it without thinking anymore. That's complacency. So one, I have to have leadership who's looking for ways to improve. And, and they need to include me in that looking and in that implementation. So what leaders are telling you when they're complacent is I've checked out. You've checked out, so I've checked out. And I'm doing my job in my sleep. And now all my job means to me now is income. I'm not getting anything else from it. So the trick for the leader is how do I give that person another reason to be here working and doing this job? How do I create that value proposition for them? And it's really easy to do. It's a matter of setting down and soliciting ideas from the workforce about how we could be more effective. How could we be more value added as a service or as a, as a product supplier? What kinds of things could we be doing to increase, to improve the bottom line, to increase our safety? And when I say safety, I don't just mean whether we get hurt or not. How do we make our jobs more secure? What is it that we could do to make our jobs more secure? What is it we can do to make our jobs more interesting? And, and that's the first step is setting down with, if you don't know what it is, I bet you, you can get a hundred ideas from them. And just the setting down with them and engaging them in that is step one. Now, the worst thing you could do is engage in those ideas and think about them and go, you know, none of those are any good right? So you should not be the arbiter necessarily of whether some of that stuff's going to work or not. You should really be open to listening and understanding why they think those things are the right things to do and be open to trying some of that stuff. I mean, the worst you have to lose is it stays the same, right? And the likelihood it is, is very low. But you as a leader have to take that initiative of saying, look, my employees are complacent. And to be honest about it, I'm frustrated by it, but I'm being complacent myself. So what is it I need to do? What is it I can do? And I can tell you what you can do is sit out with them and start engaging them on how we can get better. How can we make this? Because I'm going to tell you right now, if you stay right where you are and keep doing things exactly like you're doing them, I can tell you one thing for absolute certain. At some point in the future, you're going to be looking for another job. 
That's what I can tell you. And so think of your, people think of work as sometimes as just a way to get money. And, and in that environment, I can tell you that their boss has not helped them understand the value that they bring. And it's more than just money. So as a leader, you need to be thinking about that. You need to be on that all the time. You're 50% of your, of your job is helping those around you be successful. And that just, that just, you know, that's just good leadership. So Eric has put in a comment here. Um, it yep. is not the importance of good stress in a, in a job. If I am not challenged to the point of some stress, I become complacent. That's so exactly that engagement right. you speak of is so important. Yes. Eric, let us know if you want to come on, Mike. Jim, By all means, you. you want to have a discussion about that. But, but he's absolutely right. Look, anything that I can do without thinking or, or any effort at all, it's not worth, really not much worth doing. So the way people get satisfaction is to be challenged and then to overcome that challenge. And you get a sense of pride from overcoming that challenge. That, that's the way human beings work, period. And so if you're not stressing people a little bit, and I don't mean bad, bad stress is when I feel like I'm, I have no control whatsoever. But if you give me a challenge that is accomplishable and you give me the resources necessary to, to overcome that challenge or to, to solve that problem or whatever, and then you, as a leader, it's your job to assure that I'm on track with that, mm -hmm. that we're co communicating, collaborating about that. And, and, and we solve that challenge man, my level of pride goes up. My, my good feeling from that stress goes up. And, you know, the other thing that I think is so important um, is that when you create an environment like this, everybody comes alive and your company just goes supernova. Now, Eric wants to come on, Mike. Sure, so come on. Just open that up. Yep. Eric, you're open. Yes, I, I totally agree with him that you've got to create that stress and then give them the opportunity to leave that stress and take on some other stress. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's a, so if you start out so big that they can't see a way to success, you just further demo, demoralized and demotivated them. So the trick here is if you're in the situation where you believe you have people that are all complacent pretty much, you got to have a small win first and then you can get a bigger win and then you can get a bigger win. So, so this is a building process and you're building two things. One, you're building a can do attitude in them. You're developing confidence in them that they can be successful and you're building confidence in yourself with them that you as a boss really want them to be successful and that you're not going to overwhelm anybody and you're not going to, you're, you're going to stress them. There's no doubt about that, but it's a good stress when it's like that. And in the safety realm, when we put somebody in a position where they're shortcutting and don't give them no out to do it the right way, that stress tends to go away to become complacent again because you gave them no avenue to relieve it. So they don't perceive that stress any longer. Right. That's exactly right. And in fact, they take pride. So, so I find people who are doing way more steps than even I might think is necessary, but they're doing it because they have such pride in that job. I mean, think of the United States Marine Corps. They take an 18-year-old kid 
whose mother couldn't get them to put their socks away. And those kids in six months have so much pride in keeping their belt buckle shine, their shoes are shine, there's not a hair out of place, there's not a speck on their uniform. They do, they get up and, and out of pride run five miles before breakfast. And, and, you know, people say, well, they got a drill sergeant. Well, you know what? That drill sergeant, the first two or three weeks is kicking them in the butt. He's stressing the crap out of them. And pretty quickly, they're taking that stress and turning it into pride. And we can take a big lesson from that. They, they, those guys do what they do out of a sense of pride very quickly. Now, we, we don't have DIs, and we don't want to do it that way in the work world, but it's the same principle is give somebody something they can be successful at and then give them, make sure they get positive feedback for accomplishing that and they'll do more. We all will. I'm, 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 I'm the same way. I mean, I'm no different than anybody else. You know, we are, we are human beings and that's the way we're strung up. So. <laughs> uh, Doug shares a uh, boot camp is 12 weeks. That's exactly right. But, but my point is in three weeks, the drill sergeant's not having to beat people anymore. He's turned into more of a coach and a teacher. The first three weeks, he's, he's got a pair of leather boots and he's using them. <laughs> now, we did have a, another question or comment uh, from Dave Paul. Uh, CEO, president, senior management teams, directors, etc., need to be fully aware of engaged or disengaged staff. This is so important. Yep. They can affect and affect and effect the right culture from the top. They need to get out and talk with staff, be engaged in all levels of meeting work, not not every day, but regularly. And yeah. I wanted to couple that is that, you know, if you have a disengaged staff, wouldn't you say, James, that's a leading indicator that something could possibly be going on that's um no, it's not possibly. It is going on. I mean, look, the, the, the way your people are reacting, you're, they're giving you exactly what you're asking for. They really are. I find this everywhere. So, so let's go back to the senior leader, though. The mistake people can make, or a senior leader can make, is not accepting responsibility for the culture of the organization, right? Now, that doesn't mean that they single-handedly have to do everything. And in fact, there's not enough of them to go around, to be honest about it. So first thing is, you should be very clear with those around you and reporting to you how they should be getting out there also. And they should be being clear with those below them how they should be interacting, right? So you've got to create that chain. There's not enough of you individually to get out there and do it. But Number two, you should be out there delivering what I call the big messages. So what are the principles as a company that we're going to adhere to and we're going to work through? And while you're out there delivering those messages, the second thing you ought to be doing is looking for examples of where that's happening or not happening. Because look, if your direct reports are out there giving a different message than you are, your credibility suffers. People will say, you know what, either, either my boss, boss's boss is stupid because, because they're saying X and the guy right below them is, is basically saying poo-poo in that and saying do something different. So you should be looking for artifacts as a boss. So you ought to be out there talking to people 
and trying to get a sense of, is what I'm saying, are people trying, doesn't mean they're going to be perfect in executing on it, but are we, at least we all moving in that direction? So as a leader, you ought to be testing to see if the culture is moving in the direction you want it to so that you can make adjustments in the way you work with your direct reports and, and even the direct reports below that. So you ought to be delivering them, but you ought to be getting out there often enough to deliver the message. And I tell senior leaders, at a senior level, you ought to think about your leadership behaviors as symbolic. In other words, people are trying to get a read on you. The average person in the company will see a senior leader very seldom, to be honest about it. So if you think of the CEO of, of, uh, of any big company, Alcoa, Exxon, I don't care, pick a big company. How often does that individual actually interact with a person down at the working level? It is so rare, it's unbelievable. They do it, but it's not very often. So what you want to do is you want to pick your spots to make the statements that define you and define what you want. You got to be deliberate about that. The further down you go, the less deliberate and the less symbolic. So you ought to be actually doing the stuff. But I would say in a big organization, the first four levels, it's pretty much symbolic behavior. But you ought to be looking to see if people are taking that seriously and acting on that. So as a, as a senior executive, I do a plant tour. I want to stop and talk to the, some of the operators. And the questions I'm going to ask them are going to tell me whether their bosses are executing on the principles I really want. So are they really taking safety seriously? Are they executing safety in a way that the people at the bottom really believe that it is important? Can the person at the bottom, do they really feel empowered to stop a job? Not when they think somebody's going to get hurt, but when things just aren't being done the way they ought to be done. Are they stopping those jobs? Are they pausing? And what kind of response are they getting from their bosses? I want to be asking, I need to know, and, and I, I will tell you this, a lot of senior leaders really don't have a good repertoire of questions to be asking. They ask questions that cause people to say, ah, you know, that's a pretty friendly person. I need to be more pinpointed and know which behaviors I'm looking for and, and which answers I'm looking for and which questions to ask. And I tell senior leaders, get some help with that. There are experts out there in the industry that know what kinds of questions you ought to be asking. Don't be afraid to ask for that help because if you are afraid to ask for that, the likelihood you're going to get where you want to go is pretty low. And in the end, do you want to get where you want to go or do you want to have some sort of an image of never making a mistake or never having to ask for help? I can tell you which one's the most effective. Now here's a question for you. When you do um, go for these walkabouts and talking with people, do you go by yourself or do you take your entourage of management? Well, stuff? look, very few leaders um, go anywhere by themselves. But I will tell you this, if you take an entourage, the minute you walk in, guess what the people know? This is a dog and pony show. This isn't real. So I, you know, a CEO of a big company, you know, like Chevron or, or a, a big company, you know, like Intel or any, you know, I'm just picking names out of the air. Those CEOs have security concerns, right? So for them to just get in a car and go somewhere by themselves is probably not a a great idea. But it was no problem at all for that person to go into a control room, for example, in a chemical plant, take two operators and go have a cup of coffee with them. 
Go to the coffee room by yourself. Don't let that entourage follow you around that closely. And, and really have a conversation with those guys. So, so the less you can take an entourage, the better. <clears throat> but even if you take an entourage, you've got to get one-on-one -on -one with some of these folks. And it's got to be out of the earshot of the entourage. And, and you need to go for the express purpose from time to time of just going out and talking to people. So I have a leader who told me, he said, yeah, I've made four visits to the field this month. One, you know, we had, a, we had a, some shareholders in and we took them. And so I took that opportunity. Number two, we had the, the regulators in and I went with them. And number three, we had some stock analysts come and I went with some of them. And I said, none of those count. None of those count. So all mean? that means, Jim, is that when, the, when people that he sees as important yes. come to town, he yep. will tag along with them That's to go exactly. show off the, to yes. those important people. That's exactly the right. In other words, my, my objective wasn't you, the employee. Yeah. My objective was someone else. So, Just not getting it. Yep. Just not getting it. Yeah. Yep. It, you know, it's interesting because um, in a, a place where I did work that was um, several provinces large, the company, um, there was one group that would always come with the entourage and the employees, just like you said, we just rolled our eyes at them. Like this is they just do. a waste of company money. Yeah. Yep. Especially since they had to take a private jet to come to our location. Yep. To Toronto. But Which then, is okay. That's okay. Yeah. I mean, we know that, 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 that these guys time is valuable and yep. they, they have, they don't have a lot of it to give to everything, but it's what you do when you get there. That's, That's right. Important. And the conversations that you have and the questions you ask. And then there, yeah. And then uh, we got another comment. I just want to make sure we're fitting this in because we have two minutes. Uh, Shantosh says, very often we found many pretenders either from top management or bottom level employees. Sometimes it's very difficult to build a strong safety culture. Yeah. Well, there are, there are those pretenders, but once again, as a leader, it's our job to make it clear to people that that's not a, if you're pretending just because I'm here, you're going to be in trouble. So I, I was with a senior leader one time and we walked up on a job that had been stopped for safety purposes. And I, and so I asked, I said, uh, so y'all stopped the job? They said, yes. And I said, what for? And they were telling me. And I said, so if y'all got a supervisor or somebody coming, I was with the senior leader and he just standing there watching me ask the questions. Uh, but anyway, so up walks the supervisor and the supervisor is eyeing me and the senior leader and said, who stopped this job? And this guy said, I did. So what'd you stop it for? The guy told him, he said, well, you know, the right thing to do is stop the job, but in this case, you shouldn't have stopped the job and here's why. But, but I want to thank you for stopping it. And, and all the whole time, instead of making eye contact with the person that had stopped it, they were making eye contact with their boss's boss who was standing there next to me and looking at me once in a while. They were not really making much eye contact with the guy who stopped the job. And, and she, the supervisor who came up said, is everybody clear on this? Are you okay with this? Anybody have any questions? And the guy who stopped the job said, nah, no questions. Let's just get back to work. And so they went back to work and, I asked the senior leader, I said, uh, so what do you take from this conversation? And they're all still standing there. And uh, he says, well, uh, well, I don't know. And I said, well, 
first, I said, uh, before you guys go back to work, um, I said, let's have a, let's have a little bit of a d discussion about whether it's ever okay not to stop a job. And, but anyway, long story short, after that little intervention there, I told that boss, I said, we need to go have a meeting with that supervisor. That's a pretender. I said, she only did what she did because she thought it was what you wanted. And I said, as far as they're concerned, you're a pretender too, because you let it go on. You didn't stop that right in the middle of that conversation and say, hold it a minute. I don't ever want to hear from anybody. You shouldn't have stopped it for this reason. I'm glad you did, but for this reason, you shouldn't have. There's never a reason not to stop a job that you have a question about, ever. And I said, you should have stepped up to the plate right then and had that conversation with her and them. And he said, well, wouldn't that have embarrassed her? And I said, maybe, but you need to make a point in front of them also. They need to know that you're not a pretender. And I said, and, and you don't have to embarrass her by doing that. You, you can say, look, I, I want everybody to be clear on this. I know how important this is and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, but, but you've got to call people on that. Pretenders are, are pretenders and they're not helping you. They're not helping the company and the employees see right through it. They see right through it. So I, I say it's our job as leaders to go have a talk with them about that. And I've had a talk with my boss about it before. You know, I had a boss one time who would call me up and say, how are things going? And I finally stopped him one day and I said, do you know how that sounds to me? Sounds to me like you're asking me to say they're okay. Mm -hmm. That's the only acceptable. Well, I don't mean it that way. And I said, yeah, but that's such a general patronizing sort of comment. If you have a question about something, ask it. If you have questions you want to ask about how things are going, be specific about them. Right. Don't just give me this general, how's it going? Because I know because you, you ask it every single time, and I know that that's just a rote deal you're doing. And I hope you're not doing that with everyone else. Please stop. And I said, now you're probably angry at me for calling. He said, no, I'm not. I didn't realize. I wasn't even thinking about it. And I said, well, think about it. It's important. You are the boss. So a lot of times people are pretenders, not because they really want to be fake or any of that. They just don't realize what they're doing. And we, gotta, we, we need to speak up to that. And I, and I think that's a great lesson. Speak up and speak with candor. Be respectful. Yes. That's what it's all about. Yes. Now, yep. we are at the, the end of our time. It's a phenomenal conversation. Thank you so much. But before we go, Jim, is there any parting words that you wanted to leave our audience with? No, I would, I would just say one of the things that came out at the very front end of this was the fact that leaders really have a hard time knowing how well their leadership is being accepted by those around them. And if you ever do anything, if you ever want to do anything to really improve as a leader, you've got to get honest, unvarnished feedback. And I would say to you, the, the best leaders in the world are the leaders who are constantly seeking feedback on their leadership uh, actions and, and the quality of their leadership. And they don't do it by asking general questions. They, they try to find a way to get once again, anonymous feedback, because that will always be people, no matter how good your relationship with them is, they don't want to hurt your feelings and they hate delivering bad news. So I like to give employees a, 
uh, an avenue to give me honest, anonymous, unvarnished feedback. And I've found that to be extremely helpful to me over the years. So that, that would be my parting wisdom for, for, the, for the audience. Thank you, Jim. This has been an awesome community conversation. Thank you so, so, so much. Um, you know, and if people do want to check out um, Jim's webinar, it was using exposure control to improve decision making and safety performance for those of you on Facebook. I know the people who are joining us in the session today are actually from the webinar, Jim. I sent out um, to have a town hall with them because that's what we do at Safepedia. We want to engage with you and um, build rapport. And uh, Jim, they how can they reach out to you or Decra in order to get some more insights? They can, and they can go to they can go to our website www.decra.com and and uh, you can get to me on that website or you can uh, you know take down this name Bonnie Austin. You can uh, go online and contact Bonnie and she will track me down and put me in a headlock. And, you know, if you want to talk or whatever, she'll, she can make that happen. So I also want to thank everybody on the, on the, uh, on the internet right now participating in this. It, it really is uh, heartening to see so many people wanting to find ways to better manage safety, keep their people safe and become better leaders in general. So thank y'all. Thank you, Jim. And thank you, everybody, our members, for joining us today. Very good. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right.